I'm Colby Spencer, and this is Vantropolis. This is Vantropolis, a podcast about the happenings, the goings-on, and the general day-to-day life and antics of the underslept masses working in Vancouver's film industry. I'm no expert. I'm just nosy. And if you are too, let's do this. I first met Josh Blacker at a mutual friend's party back in 2006. As we chatted over the appetizers, I asked him the quintessential question that somehow seems to help us define and categorize other human beings we initially meet. What do you do for work? He replied that he'd recently quit practicing law, had moved to Vancouver, and was pursuing his love of acting. I was fascinated. His story was inspiring, and it reminded me that it was still possible to choose to follow the path less traveled, and in turn, know you were living your life's true purpose. Since then, Josh has become a successful working actor with a long list of film and television credits to his name, including Stargate Universe, Travelers, the 2013 blockbuster film Elysium, and most recently, the highly anticipated Apple TV series C, starring Jason Momoa, which I do admittedly press him about. Can you blame me? We dig into the audition process, what it's like working on a large A-list set, and why you should always pursue acting for the love of the craft and not for the money and fame. Here's Josh. Josh, hi. Hi. Josh Blacker, welcome to Ventropolis. Colby, great to be here. Thank you. Thanks for coming. I'm very excited. And we were joking before we started, it's so cliche, you just came from an audition. Right. Not only that, but I also just came from L.A. So I know. I came from L.A., then an audition, and then here. So You lily padded. So tell me about those. <laughs> Let's kick it off with that, and then we'll get into sort of like... The journey. Right. Uh, so L.A. was uh, was a whirlwind. I'm sure we'll get into a lot of that. I was there for the uh, premiere of C, the new Apple TV Plus show that's coming out. Uh, I'm Very not sure exciting. when this is going to come out, but it airs on November 1st. The first three episodes do, and then every Friday thereafter there's another episode. Uh, and so I got to see the first episode and do all the red carpet stuff and, you know, all the cliché L.A. things, Runyon Canyon, Santa Monica Beach, all of that stuff. But it was a blast. Um, Had you seen the, any episodes before? Nothing, right? This was the first time? No. Because it only, was pretty top secret, all this stuff. It was super top secret. More than most in Vancouver, I would say. Well, that's because Apple's known for their secrecy, right? Right. A- on everything. And when it came to this, they weren't any different. And and I kind of applaud them for it because it built the suspense. It, it builds the desire, builds people's interest in the show. Um, but I hadn't seen... Uh, any of it, other than, you know, when you see the monitor on the set on the day, but that's without VisFX, it's without so much. But more importantly, what I hadn't seen was all of the other characters' stuff. I saw what our group, our Pion soldiers had been doing, um, but to see what Momoa had been doing on some of his sets and some of the other characters, it, w- it, it was really just remarkable to see it all come together in such a theatrical and epic way. And what a way to like finish it off is to be able to go to L.A. and actually go to the premiere. Yeah. I know you joke about it, but that's like a dream. Yeah, it, it's great. I mean, it's my second premiere. I did a premiere for Elysium, the Matt Damon, uh, Neil Blomkamp film. Oh, we're going to get uh, into that too, Jeff. Yeah, so it was really good to do this because having done it once, you're – just like anything, you get a little bit more experience and you understand the process a little bit more. And Act like you belong, they say. That's exactly <laughs> Yeah, trust me. <laughs> I did a lot that's of like that. That's like when I went on first class once and I was with this guy who always did business and he's like, Colby, act like you belong. I heard, you know, there's that famous saying, um, fake it till you make it. I just listened to a podcast um, 
I forget which one it was. And this guy said, no, 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 that's wrong. Make it until you make it. And what he meant was keep doing what you need to do in order to get where you need to be. Don't fake it. Like, do the real thing. Do the work. And opportunity, do the work, exactly. And, you know, it's, you combine that with the other cliche of that luck is when preparation meets opportunity. If you keep making it until you make it. Yeah. That's well, and really that comes up a lot solution. even with all of these film journeys is how much work it takes behind the scenes. The freebies, the weekends, yeah. the indies, the volunteering. You don't just come out of VFS or and get your headshots for acting and show up on set. No, there's everybody says, oh, this guy's an overnight success or this, this lady's an overnight success. Yeah, you, you never just show up on set, right? You've, you've done all of the work night in and night out. You've been in class. You've, you've been on short films, on student films, on whatever it may be. And, you know, giving up nights. Like, I know sometimes I'll make a plan to see my buddies on a Thursday night. We're going to want to go for some beers and watch a hockey game or something. The next thing you know, 6 p.m., 6.30, you get an email from, a, from your agent. You've got six, seven pages to learn for 9.30 tomorrow morning. So yeah. you call, you bail, and you spend the next three hours pretending to be somebody else but all in the hope that you get good work. And yeah. that um, it's just like anything. The more you flex that muscle, the better are, the better you become at it. Okay, so let's get into that because I want to yeah. talk about your journey. I know we kind of started with C, and I think we'll get back to it at the end because yeah, I have sure. some burning questions. All right. Um, and I have a lot of friends that worked on it, so cool. I'd love to swap stories. Um, but I want to talk about kind of your journey through film because it's not a conventional story. And you know what? The rule, or sorry, the kind of what I've come to see from this podcast is there is no real one story coming mm. to film. There's all these different journeys that get you to where you are. And I love yours. So let's talk about kind of where you grew up and how, you know, I want to talk about your career shift as well. Sure. So I grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa. Um, during the apartheid years. And uh, my parents are um, Irish and English and Welsh and all of those sort of colonial powers up uh, in Europe. And I grew up as an actor. I, I grew up acting. It was always in me, in my DNA. I really think that uh, being a performer is in your DNA. It's one of those things that you either want to do or you don't because nobody would volunteer to do this. Um, and so I was a high school theater geek. Um, and then eventually, my family moved to Canada because uh, I was almost 18 and I would have had to go into the uh, army. It was an, a mandatory draft uh, conscription. And I didn't want to fight for a government I didn't believe in. And the, um, <laughs> the award, reward for that was six years in jail as a conscientious objector. So my family was able to get us out of South Africa and we moved to Canada. And when I came here, I, I did an undergrad and I started off doing an undergrad in theater, a BFA in theater. And after a while, the cacophony of voices, everybody you speak to say, what are you studying? Oh, I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to be an actor. Just everybody said, don't do it. You're so smart, Josh. You know, I always did relatively well in school in spite of myself. Um, and they said, go do something, go get a real job. And I listened to them, um, which in hindsight I shouldn't have, but I'm glad I, you know, I've had the journey I've had. And I went off to law school, and uh, I practiced law for four years and realized that I was miserable. I wasn't happy. I had an anxiety attack, and I started to have panic attacks regularly. Uh, and, and that's I went, totally when your body's saying, like, this yeah. is not the right thing. It's like— You, you didn't listen, so I'm going to tell you, right? I, like Your, your body, body's like, I don't want to be inside of you right now. Yeah. <laughs> your, your soul is, Can I get out of here? <laughs> it's your soul trying to jump out. And uh, so I went to a career counselor. We did all the tests and everything else and did a list of professions. And the list of professions was however long it was, but right near the bottom was law. And I thought, okay, well, there's a sign if ever there's one. So 
I spoke to my parents and my dad said to me, he said, Josh, do what you love and find a way to make money doing it. Uh, which was some of the best advice. That's all I've you want to hear. Exactly. Just to know that people have got your back, your friends, your family. So I packed everything up and uh, moved to Vancouver, and that was 15 years ago. I know, and I met you at a party really around this time, kind of 05, 06. Yeah. And I literally remember meeting you because I think I was feeling the same sorts of things in my life. I was right. in advertising and mm-hmm. knowing it wasn't going to be the long game, but it was status and yeah. decent money. And you were eating appetizers, and you told me this story, and I was like, oh, my God, this, I'm so <laughs> jealous. This is amazing because what a leap, honestly, like from that safety, that status to a, the, the arts, really. Yeah, everybody says it, it is so brave and, and, you know, quite a leap of faith. But honestly, when you're as miserable as I was and, um, and, and having the sort of mental health and anxiety issues I was at the time, it was a no-brainer for me. Yeah. Um, less risk and less loss, right? And, and only after four years, you know, you get caught with the golden handcuffs. They talk about it in a lot of careers, law, medicine, probably advertising, where you start making a lot of money, but you start spending a lot of money. Well, that's just it. You just and increase so you, all, your, all your spending. Right. You can't leave. Like no. you buy a better house, a better car, more clothes, nicer clothes, eat out more, do whatever. And all of a sudden you're living paycheck to paycheck, yeah. but just in a much more um, lucrative or sort of flamboyant way. Yeah, I totally agree. So when you came to Vancouver, did you know about film and television or, you know, 06 was not, you know, it was busy, but it wasn't anything like it is now. Did you come on a wing and a prayer and just kind of hope or had you done your homework? Yeah, I had done a lot of homework, but at the time, there wasn't a lot of information out there. Obviously, not the, that the internet wasn't around, but there weren't as many people doing podcasts, writing blogs, uh, giving the information out that people needed. So I moved, I, I believe it was October of 03. And for the first year, I stayed, I studied. I just went back into class and I said, I've got to get back up to speed. Where'd you go? I, I studied with Michael David Sims back in the day, um, which was great because we were doing three scenes a week. Um, you're rehearsing with three different scene partners, three, four hours a week. So it was it, it was immersive, and it was just what I needed. Um, Did it feel right? It felt— The uh, voices stopped? Yeah, 100%. I felt so much more at peace and so calm and felt really connected to what I was doing. And I think when there's that disconnect between who you are and what you're doing, that's when— um, problems start to reveal themselves, whether it's health or, mm-hmm. or sort of, um, you know, people drinking too much or eating too much or doing whatever. When we just are disconnect with ourselves yeah. is when our body start, and mind starts to suffer. So I felt right away at home. And then I got an agent. I got my first agent out of class. I, I was at a, um, a showcase. We did a showcase. and What's a showcase? So when you take one of your scenes, um, Michael chose the best of the scenes that we had available at the time. He invited a bunch of his industry contacts to come and we performed them. We showcased our work oh, got it. Okay. for um, actors and, and uh, sorry, directors and producers. Almost and, like a little pitch. An agent. Yeah. Yeah. Instead of sending out your demo reel, they just get to see you uh, work your stuff live. Does that still happen now? That's still a common occurrence? Yeah. 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 A lot of the, the good classes will do it, like the reputable ones, because they obviously have more industry contacts. But I think they, they're becoming less and less frequent than I remember. Why do you think? I think people are busy. Yeah. Honestly, people in the industry are so busy um, that... That was more of a quality, not quantity thing. Yeah. I think when they do go, they want to make sure that it's going to be worth their while. So I think classes that were doing it once every two months and now maybe doing it biannually once every six months or once a year, highlighting um, the people that have been in their class for a while and Mm -hmm. really been working on their craft. 
Um, and I think that's the main reason, but uh, who knows? You'll have to have one of the acting teachers on and ask them. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Next episode. So you got this agent. You did your classic headshots, you mm-hmm. know, Josh in the alley. A lot of the time was, you know, standing in the alley, that black and white brick yeah. wall. I always joke for the headshots. Right. You know, trying to look as rugged as you can. Like, do, will this work for sci-fi? Will <laughs> this work for action? Will it work for the CW? Whatever. Yeah, right? exactly. Um, and then you kind of got your first break in 06, right? Like, I've got Killer Instinct on Fox. Right. Tell me a little bit about that. <laughs> that was an interesting, um, uh, that was interesting. Probably the one of the worst experiences I've had as an actor. The um, One of the leads was, um, I don't know if I should, I'll talk about this, whatever. Just w- You can talk in code. Didn't treat um, the rest of the cast with a lot of respect. Uh, and it was a little disconcerting. Um, because it made me worry that uh, I had just jumped from one job with a bunch of assholes into another yeah. job with a bunch of assholes. Because it can be that way, and we can talk about the good guys getting yeah. into some of the other stuff you've worked on. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, like that can poison an entire crew. Right. I mean, I only had two lines. I remember what they were. It wasn't even two lines. It was two words. I was doing a countdown. It was two minutes, 60 seconds. <laughs> uh, and How many times did you practice that in the mirror? Oh, countless, because I was on set for 13 hours before they called me. So You're I like, said, I should go again. Like, I, what else am I doing? But it was 3 o'clock in the morning down yeah. by the docks. And this was episode 13. The show got canceled after 11 episodes. So the show that I shot never aired anyway. So oh. it's sitting in somebody's computer somewhere. We'll never know, never that. To, we'll never know never how you did the countdown. The I'll probably end up on, you know, Fallon and he'll uncover Or sometimes something. don't they buy those things like you'll see in Germany in 10 years? You'll be in a hotel and you'll be like, that's me. Yeah, maybe. Where's my, where's my uh, residual payback for that? Isn't it residuals? Yeah. 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 So that, that was the first break. And then, um, and then shortly after that, you know, a couple of other smaller gigs here and there. And then I, I, I ended up working with nicer people. And the industry is mostly full of really good, really nice, really talented, and really creative people. Uh, and after that, I decided to get another agent because my agent at the time, uh, Pamela Wise, an incredible woman was um, who took a chance on me, was mostly doing commercial work. And so she was sort of putting me out there for, for um, film and TV work, and that wasn't what she was primarily doing. So and you don't really point. do commercials. You do film and television, yeah, even I, from back then, right? I, like, yeah, I don't have a face that sells product it's more threatening to sell your products <laughs> you know buy this or else and so i found another agent and then the opportunities became further uh more and more and obviously you know the business was building here too like you know we talk about stargate was one you know yeah. that, that was a big one for vancouver for that time for mm-hmm. sure well the whole the whole stargate franchise was yes. huge for us and that was my biggest break to point to, in my career to that point because yeah. it was the third iteration of the franchise there had been sg1 then Stargate Atlantis, and uh, and then Stargate Universe. Which was is, that all at Bridge Studios? Yeah. 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 And I loved the movie when it came out. And so when I auditioned, I auditioned for one role that ended up going another way. They wrote my role specifically for me. Um, and uh, Brad and Rob, the, the showrunners, and on it was a recurring, it was like nine episodes on this incredible franchise. And... On day one, I showed up on set, and you talk about one of the heart, great heartbreaks of your life. Like, you learn this business the hard way. I showed up, and, I mean, they were super kind. Brad and Rob sat me down. They said, Josh, by the way, you die on episode nine. Oh, no. Spoiler alert if anybody <laughs> hasn't watched. If you're watching that and catching up, yeah, apologies. Apologies. But um, they were so 
kind about it and, and really gave me an understanding of where my character was going to go, what the arc was going to be, and what they wanted out of that performance, which was um, quite unusual, I not think. Not common. No, not not common at all. But that's what I found working with a lot of the the, the local showrunners like Brad and, and Joe Malazzi another one and, um, um, and Rob and... Uh, Simon Barry here is like that. There's so many great uh, local um, content creators, and I find that they they tend to operate with um, uh, I don't know they a little bit more Canadian about things. That's that's a really good point because we don't really get into that. You know, we talk a lot about producers and showrunners and productions, mm-hmm. the big American ones. Right. And there's studios up here, but you've got people flying up and down from LA coming for the day. But how it kind of runs here on a on a Canadian level? That's you know that's that's nice to hear. Yeah, and and they're still that way. I've worked with Brad Wright a couple times. I worked with him again on Travelers recently, and and he's still the same guy he was then. And I think, to be fair, not that I don't want to tarnish the the the, the American industry, but I think writers and creators are just writers, producers, showrunners. They're just really creative people, and mm-hmm. they have so many great ideas, and they're and generally very very kind and very cool. Love writers. of the art. Yes. Right, maybe less of the business. Well, about the story- it's a reality. The storytelling. Yeah. But the problem is, you know, it's it is show business, so you have to understand the business component of it. Yeah. And, and those are some of the you learn the business lessons the easy way or the hard way. The easy way is to talk to people and find out about mistakes they've made or things they would like to do over, or you find out the hard way when uh, I have a friend who booked a show. Uh, it was a guest star, and he invited all of his friends over to watch his episode and. <laughs> Basically, all of its stuff had been cut, literally for, for no other reason. They, they or now shot. it's with digital, just deleted. Right? They just no they cutting shot, room floor. They shot it all, and they just didn't have time to tell that particular part of the story. It was heartbreaking, and so there's a there's a tough way to learn the business. Well, I think I read that, and maybe it's Rob Lowe's autobiography about the outsiders, and he, mm. he did this heart wrenching scene, like gave it everything, and they were like, "That's just the we're just rehearsing." Like, we got to go again and again. He's just like, I don't have anything left. <laughs> like, that was it, you yeah. know? Well, you always shoot the rehearsal. That's what I always yeah. say. Yeah. Uh, but I love uh, I love a good rehearsal, but I love when we shoot a rehearsal because it's it's one of those performances that you, you know, you can play around with a little bit more. Uh, and I watch so many shows. Like, I saw a movie a, a while back called Ensemble, the uh, Denny Villeneuve film. I love Denny Villeneuve. Oh my god! This movie, you've got to watch it. It's based. I'm on obsessed a, with it's him. It's based on a play, and there's one moment towards the end. I won't give away any spoilers. The, the female lead in that just does this one thing, and it, to this day, I just don't know how the hell she did it because it was one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen yeah. put on screen. Um, so I, I always just say, shoot everything. Well, and, and on that note for you, when you're auditioning, you know, you're obviously, you get pages and you're told kind of how to dress and what this character is. How risky are you in there in an audition? Like to that point, I mean, those are bigger celebrities and, you know, right. bona fide and close with the director, et cetera. They already have the role. But I'm curious about that because you can take a risk there, but you can also F it up. So when you start out, you're... Um you don't know the full process, right? And you're also sort of just, you've got your sort of water wings on. You're, you're learning how to be an actor and how to find your way of, of, of creating these characters because sometimes you don't get a lot of information on them. But I would say now, having been in the, in the business for a while, me and a friend of mine, Allison, we have this great saying that we came up with together. It's subtlety be damned because none of the great performances are ever... Um, Vanilla. There's always good choices being made. And when I say subtle to be damned, I don't mean go in there and do a clown show just for the sake of doing a clown show. 
make good choices, make strong choices, because you only get one chance to to present your version of this character to casting and to the producers and the and the network, hopefully. So do what you want to do. So I, I used to teach a bit, and I and I told my students, I said, it's a one night show. Like imagine your name on the marquee, Josh Blacker as. For example, in C, The Witch Find a Warrior. I made a lot of choices, and they were strong ones. And I went in, and I did exactly, for an audience of three people, exactly what I wanted to do. And I said, that's my version of this character. If you want to hire me, fine. You know, I'll remount this production. I'll show up on the set that you build, and I'll work with the costume designer and the producer and the director and, and all of the other amazing actors and creative people involved, and I'll remount this production. And then you leave not wondering, oh, I should have done this, or I mm-hmm. wish I had done that. Um, because even if you don't get it, you know you did what was true to you. Right, because I, I got to perform then. I got to act. Instead of looking at an, an audition, as, which I did in my early days, as what do they want to see? What does the Pleasing. casting director want? Right? You're like dancing for daddy, as, as one of my acting teachers, Andrew McElroy, says. You go in there and do your performance because you are the creative person in this situation that they've a- invited into that room to show them what you think of this world and this character. So really make strong choices and, and, and don't back away from them. But of course, be open to redirection because that's it is a collaborative process still and you still need to be able to take direction and, and take your idea and meld it with whatever the director or the, um, or the, the writer uh, want in that each particular moment. Well, and I don't think people realize too, like auditions, it's like an empty boardroom often with like three tired, grumpy people Next, yeah. you know, they're running over to your point. You just came from an audition where you were worried about it running over. Mm-hmm. You know, you get thrown in there and you have to make magic in there. You have to put everything, you know, like it's it's a very pedestrian, boring room and you have to bring magic in, in your 40 seconds or whatever. Yeah. That's got to be hard. To, to I'm some, sure a lot of people crack, right? To some extent, for sure. But the audition process is not about being perfect. It's So I used to think that you had to have the lines memorized completely, 100 different ways. Um, and you, you should, but if you, if you go up in lines and you forget something, you just start again. It's fine. That happens on set all the time. Uh, but the magic, I think, and people forget this, it's really such a basic thing. Just listen to your scene partner. In this case, it's the reader in the room. And if you truly listen to them and you've done the work and you've made the choices – your reactions and the way you uh, present the character will be magical. Have you seen any audition reels from Famous or otherwise that you were in awe of? I know I've seen a couple. Yeah. Um, where I can't even believe what they've done in an audition. It's yeah. Why wouldn't they get it, you know? Well, there's so many. Um, I know Aaron, uh, oh my God, from Breaking Bad, Aaron. Aaron Paul? Aaron Paul. His audition for Jesse Pinkman was remarkable. It was so loose and so fluid and so committed to the idea of who he wanted this character to, to be. I just couldn't imagine it being anybody else. Yeah. But having – I have a production company as well. And so I've been in the audition room when we're casting people. And sometimes it's never about the performance. Somebody can do an amazing performance, but the look isn't just right. Right, yeah. And so what you do – It's not personal. No, and I've had this happen to me. You're just you not go the look. You do something and they love it. Then – but you don't look the right way for whatever. Somebody, next person comes in, looks exactly like what they had in their mind, and then they ask, they give them a redirect, can you do it this way, right. which is the way that you did it before? And that's fine. 
it's it's like Brian Cranston said, speaking of Breaking Bad, he said it's like losing a wallet. You know, if you see a if you lose your wallet, you see a wallet lying on the floor, you go pick it up. It's like, oh, that's mine. Oh no, you look inside. It's not mine. It's somebody else's. This is yours, Colby. So that's your role. That's what he says. Auditions and roles are when the right. If you get the role, it's your role. Yeah, fair enough. If you don't, you don't. There's some where you really just want to fight for them and you want to do everything in your power because you really, truly believe it's the right role for you. Well, I know Spike Lee's taken some risks. Like, I know in Clockers, like, Makey Pfeiffer, he'd never acted before. Yeah. And he pulled him in. He's like, you're it. Yeah. And he had no experience. And he nails it. He kills it. Yeah. Destroys that role. And there's there's And he never looked back, right? There's loads of stories like that. It's amazing. You just see something, you know? And I guess that's also, I should get a casting director in because that's a skill. Being able to find that magic and see it, even if the person doesn't see it in right. themselves. And, and more than yet, anything, like you know? it's, it's not about every individual audition. It's about the consistency of your performances. That Because um, remember, you're also auditioning while you don't want to present it for the casting directors. You, want, you are auditioning for them in some way as well because they want to bring in the best possible people because they are being hired by the studio, by the network. And so they have a lot of, on the line as well. And so they want to make sure that the people they bring in are going to do the best possible job in the best possible way. And if you do that consistently over time, you'll be seen more and more by um, all of the various casting directors in town. Well, and I think if you see it that way as well, you're less afraid going in there because the casting directors want you to succeed. And I think you can, I've heard friends go in and they're like, I'm scared of those people until I realize they want you to kill it. Absolutely. They need you to as early as possible so they can go home. Everyone in that room. Right? They're not, they seem gruff sometimes and stern, but it's just a business. It's a, you know, treadmill of of auditions. Well, and, and but they're dying for you to like blow them all away. They, they want the perfect person to come in for the role. Um, and sometimes they don't know what they're looking for. They right. they have an idea, like the broad parameters of the character are defined, but that's where you make a choice. You come in and you go, this is what I think, and you blow them away. Mm-hmm. Everyone in that room wants you to succeed. And remember that what appears, what might appear as being gruff or disinterested is them having 9,000 other things going on, especially right. if it's the producer, the director, or the showrunner, or even the casting director. They may have... If they're in the middle of pre-production, there is so much still to be figured out that this is one element. It's a crucial element element to the whole process, but it is just one part. So, uh, and that's another thing I learned is just don't take it personally. You need thick skin. You, thick skin and a short memory. That's yeah. all I tell people. Because it's a very it, it'll break you. And I mean, we've all we all know even famous fragile actors. I've heard all kinds of stories of, you know. They're just they're just walking around broken from years of like rejection. Yep. Your career's almost done. Trying to get a comeback, it, you know, like it's crazy. Yeah, you well, think they've got it all together, and it's like they're hanging by a thread. Well, I took a year off um, just two years ago. Uh, so this last year, I'm, I've, I've only been back for about a year and a bit. Because, I didn't even know that. Yeah, I took a year off. I was burnt out, and um, and I started to just feel a little bit resentful mm-hmm. towards the industry and and the business. Which is not in the industry. That's on me because it, it's my reaction to what's going on. Yeah. And uh, I said that I made myself a promise that I would come back if I missed it and if I had the right attitude. And, of course, I missed it because all my friends are in it. It's, it's the only thing I've ever truly loved that I was halfway decent at. So I decided to come back and I said, uh, Josh, you're going to do it for one reason only, and it's just for your love of acting. Mm-hmm. Everything you do is going to be because you want to perform and you want to tell stories. So always bring that love to it. And then if you book the role or you don't, it doesn't matter. I mean, sure, it hurts. 
But if, if you don't book it, it means somebody else did. It means that there's work available and that there are people, friends usually, who are out there working and, and doing what they love and making and advancing their careers. And somebody once said, look, I mean, all ships rise, you know. Like if you, if you bring your best possible work, then, and if people are working, then that means there's more work. Yes. So. Yeah, I, instead of being in competition. Yeah. And to that point, because I do want to get into kind of your career yeah. trajectory. It's so easy and to I'm get caught up in these journeys. No, you're not. You're the reason for the season really? here. Uh, that's why. If, if you weren't here, I would just be talking to myself and I'd have nobody listening but my mom. Um, but talk to me a little, bit about, <laughs> a little bit about auditions like in Vancouver. So how many auditions are you doing in Vancouver versus kind of L.A. or somewhere else? And then I kind of want to get into your audition for Elysium because mm-hmm. that was – in my mind, a really exciting time for you. That was. And I remember when it happened. Right. I remember you even had to change your name on Facebook. Yeah. We'll, yeah. we'll talk about that. There was a, yeah, there's some interesting... You know you're special when. <laughs> right. But yeah, like auditioning here, you know, I would love to know more about that. How many people are coming up from L.A. to audition? Are you going down to L.A. or Toronto? Or mm-hmm. how does all that work? You know, break that down a little bit for people that don't know. It really depends on the actor. Um, and I can... I can speak to the overall experience, but probably more specifically to my experience. Yeah, your experience I, I for sure. I mostly audition in Vancouver and put stuff on tape for Toronto uh, and occasionally stuff on tape for L.A. The difficulty with working in L.A. is you need your visa. And and that's a, quite a process to go through. You then also need to have a U.S. manager um, who can then submit you to the U.S. casting directors. And... You know, then you're paying another person uh, out of right. the money you make. You're paying one more person. You have to pay the tax man, then your agent, then a, then a U.S. manager. So what appears like a nice payday ends up being far less than you had expected. So as it stands right now, I'm happy to work in Vancouver and live in Vancouver. Um, but with C coming out and with a lot of the other work I've been doing, part of me is interested in the idea of getting a U.S. manager so that um, – you can start to explore and uh, auditioning for different projects, projects that don't film here or projects that maybe you feel you're right for but just don't have access to the casting room because you don't have a U.S. manager. I have a great agent here, um, and even with him as my agent, it's still tough to get into those um, those rooms as a Canadian. Mm-hmm. Uh, unless, of course, the show is shooting in Canada, then uh, you may be able to submit to U.S. casting and then it comes up here. But um, there... We're a service industry. So what I mean by that is that Vancouver services the U.S. film and TV industry. Um, we have some homegrown productions, like I talked about Brad and Simon and, and a bunch of the other guys filming here, making shows here. But we mostly service the U.S. industry. So And they're U.S. companies. So, of course, they want to hire more Americans. Um, just like as Canadians, we want Canadian companies to hire more Canadians. So they're fighting that uh, all the time. Um, I don't think it's because the talent up here isn't as, as recognized as it is in the States. But I do feel as though there's a there's a slight perception of Canadian actors as being just slightly less than. Um, because if you're British or if you're Australian, there's a perception that you must be a better actor, right? Or it's that regal on, accent. Right, or at least on par with, right. uh, with the Americans. Uh, and obviously, look... The Brits have been doing this forever, Shakespeare onwards and even beforehand. Uh, and the Americans, there's so many American, great American actors. And there's obviously some terrific Australian actors, uh, Heath Ledger being one that mm-hmm. first comes to mind. Naomi Watts is another great one. 
But we have just as much talent in Canada, and I've seen it firsthand in class, in auditions, in, in the films that I've produced. So I think there's just, we need to create more opportunities for Canadian actors to really break out in a bigger way, especially since we don't really have a star system in Canada. What do you mean, like a star system? Star system meaning like there's an opportunity for you to become a star. And if you right. become a star, then just by name alone, you will book stuff. Right. Because of your um, the the work you've done and the uh, level of success attached to your work. Um, you know, there's there's very few movie stars working today. There's a lot of celebrities and there's a lot of great actors. Yeah. But to truly become a movie star is, is, is a different beast because – at the end of the day, that's the business side of it. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the opening weekend numbers are are everything in so, with some of these movies. Yeah, I listened to Dak Shepard to his podcast, and that's what he said. Like, Friday night you get a call, and they're like, look, you know, it's open back east. He's like, can we at least wait till we get the numbers from the West Coast? Yeah. Like, we've already written off my life in two hours. Yeah, or, you know? or they're even just looking at um, what it's tracking to do. You know, they, they can insane. tell by what it does on a Thursday night how well it's going to do. But there's always movies that surprise you, right? That's true. And yeah, absolutely. I, and there's so many of those that... I love it when those happen. Yeah. And that, that's like nailing an audition, that little magic of that one that breaks through. It's great. Right? It's so like Jordan Peele is a master yeah. of that right now. Yeah. And, Get out. Like, oh. And all of the, well, all of the Blumhouse movies, right? Jason yeah. Blum has produced it, but they've done it well. They've got the, the budget in the right number and then they've marketed it um, really well. And then the rest after that, it's, it's, it's art. I mean, there's a science to it, to predicting what these things are going to do. But that's not something I try to trouble myself with no. too much because it takes away from the, especially in the creative process when you're auditioning oh, it'll kill or, you. or on set. You know, I had a question when I was just doing um, press for C. If, there were, if I felt a responsibility to... Apple for, you know, they're launching a new platform and this is one of their major shows that they're going to be debuting. And did I feel a responsibility or burden to make sure that it was a success? And Whoa, no pressure. Well, I think, I mean, I think it, I mean, I'm glad that they think I have that much. Uh, <laughs> You're like, my role will do that. Yes. Over this. But I think the only thing you can think about is, are there good people working on this project? And did I do my best work? Uh, and I think if that's the case, the chances of success increase dramatically. And on this particular project, there was, we had all of that. We had all of the, the great talent that we could have Okay, assembled. we're going to get into that. I can't well, wait. And I did all my work. But that's, you know, my advice to people all the time is, how do you succeed in this business? Show up, don't be an asshole, and do the work. Yeah. That's it. And it's funny because even Joaquin Phoenix, I read an interview about the Joker. And that mm. was his only thing with any sort of other hires or co-stars. Just no asshole policy. Yeah. They have to be good, of course, but I don't want any assholes on this set. You're finding that a lot. It was just a such a tough film, days. too, and he was just like, I'm not going to yeah. put up with it. And yeah. he can pull that, right? Of course. And, and as you should. I think if you can, you should because you're working sometimes 16, 17 hours a day, and nobody wants to be around an asshole for 17 seconds, let alone 17 hours. So yeah. if you can get rid of that intangible, then I think you increase the chance of success because then everyone feels really committed to the show and or the film. And that will be demonstrated in their performances. 
Okay, well, that's a really good segue for Elysium. Sure, yeah. Because I, I know you have Matt Damon stories. He's the <laughs> opposite of all of those bad things. Um, so tell me about that audition. I mean, that was a huge film for Vancouver. Mm. Uh, I had Victoria Burkhardt on. She worked on Elysium as well. Um, Neil Blomkamp, obviously. Uh, just talk to me about that audition. Like, wh- what was going through your mind? I mean, you were working, obviously, right up until then, of course. Do, would you see that as, like, a pivotal break for you in terms of, like, Hollywood blockbuster audition? Or would you feel like you were leading that way, something else? I don't always want to look at size as success because that's not true, right? No, but it, it's certainly a part of it because you are – I want to be careful about what I say here because your resume speaks for itself, right? And the content of your resume and the, and the number of roles is obviously one thing. But the size of the roles is important to because of what it says to the casting and what it says to the the director and the producers of the network is that you're capable of carrying that load of work. Right. You've done it before, so you can show up and say it and you can do it again. Some cred. And exactly. So you know what you're doing, but it was definitely a- And sorry, just on that point, I would also say it's why a lot of actors get lots of work is just because of their veterans. Right. Right versus someone new. It's like a puppy versus an older dog. It's like the puppy's going to shit everywhere maybe. They don't know how right. to, but, you know, and Buddy there, he's done 25 things here. Right. I've seen him on everything. So they know that you can show up and do the work and that— Make uh, your marks, hit your marks, everything, right? Right, and, and production will touch base with casting directors and say, look, this guy was awesome on set or, hey, he just wasn't really good. He was tough to work with. And yeah. So your reputation it will take you quite a ways as in are you a good person and are you a good person to work with, but can you really do the work? Mm-hmm. Like, can you show up and, and carry that workload? And I would say, yes, you can. So, yeah, it was a, a huge audition for me. Um, and that was here or was that in L.A.? That was here. I had actually, this is a funny story because I would met Neil a week before. Um, I feel like if you're South African, anywhere yeah. near the vicinity of Vancouver, he probably invites you to like his birthday party. No, we, we, <laughs> we were members of the same squash club. He's a big squash fan, and I was until it started destroying my body. Right. Um, and I'd met him. I played him a game, and uh, and I introduced myself. I didn't mention the fact that that was an actor, and I didn't talk other than say, look, I really love your work, mm-hmm. which at that point in time had been his short film, Alive in Joburg, a couple of Nike commercials, and... District 9. Um, and then I heard that they were casting for Elysium. I begged and pleaded with my agent to get me an audition. Um, and Candace Elzinga, who was the casting director for Elysium, also the casting director for C, which I just booked. So and she, so there's a thread, right? For she, those of you following along, it all comes back in spades. It's she, the relationships, right? The relationship. And she's fantastic. Don't she's, burn any bridges. Don't burn bridges. But show up and consistently. Yeah. Doing good work. And if you don't get something, look at, like, Craig Wenman was on, too, scriptwriter. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Someone that, like, cut him from a job. Sorry, we ran out of money, whatever. Like, hired him for a feature five years later. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Because— It's not personal. It isn't. It really isn't. And it's about they want the best person for the job in every job. Yeah. In front or behind the camera. So in this instance, I got an audition. I had um, an idea of what I wanted the character to be. And, uh, You're a bit of a bruiser in that movie. Yeah, I'm a heavy for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I made some strong choices. Obviously, the accent was easy for me to do. It's a very difficult accent for a lot of people to do, the South African accent. Yes. But obviously, I grew up doing it my whole life. <laughs> Not doing it, just existing with it. Uh, so I think that was a key part of it because I understood the mentality of the type of guy that he was. Mm-hmm. Um, and somehow, Neil had my email um, beforehand. So 
before um, the callback, he sent me an email saying, hey, man, I see you're um, uh, auditioning. This is who this guy is. He just sent me like a one or two line, um, and I'm not going to betray any of his trust as to what it was, but it was really specific to a South African experience. Mm -hmm. And I understood it immediately. And then I brought that to the callback. and That was it? No. Oh. Two months went by. And I was oh, like, see, so you don't think that. You don't think two months are going to go by. Yeah. You saunter out of there. Yeah. Nothing. And, you, and after, you know, I try to leave. It takes longer other, than you think, it right? It takes way longer. In, in TV, it's a little bit faster, but on, on these big budget features. I Were mean, you this waiting was, for the call? Like, is it one of those, the phone no, rings? And you're, no. No, I had made a commitment to myself before that, that I would leave every audition and I literally, in my mind, say next. And I throw away the sides. You're like seven samurai. This is very zen. You have to because otherwise it just sits inside of you. Get an ulcer. Yeah. And it's, um, I mean, but then your agent calls you for some stupid reason. You know, like, oh, (laughs) I've updated your resume. And every time you see their name on your phone, you're like, oh, this is it. I booked it. Everybody shut up. And then they're like, oh, hey, we just wanted to touch base. How are you doing? Like, good. Don't call me for the next two weeks. Don't do this. Unless it's a booking (laughs) or an audition. And, uh. Yeah, so two months went by, and I booked it, and then... Uh, Move slower features, right? Yeah, and even just the wardrobe process, it was a, sort of a, a one-month um, process of going in for the various fittings. And all here in Vancouver? Yeah, all of the wardrobe, and most of the shooting was done here. We did shoot for a month in Mexico City as well. So exciting. Yeah, it was pretty cool. And then that first day on set, I show up, and um, although we did a, we did like two weeks of military training. Oh, uh, really? Me and Brandon and Charlto. Uh, so that we could, because we were sort of a unit, and they wanted us to look like a unit that had been working together forever. Um, and the whole process was incredibly collaborative, from my costume, which I customized in a few subtle ways that not a lot of people would know about, but meant a lot to me as the character, yeah. to um, this the, the training. Shalto, who was the, the lead in that and District 9, had some really good ideas about how he wanted us to work together. I love him. He's amazing. And then there's a really interesting story that um, uh, I like to tell people. There was one scene where we really didn't have a lot to do. My character and Brandon Arrett, who played sort of, I was the right-hand guy, he was the left-hand guy, to Charlto, and we didn't have a, any lines really in the scene. So we kind of just sat around in the background. We came up with an idea of what we wanted to perform in the scene and like what our characters would be doing. So we did a bunch of stuff, and then Neil turned around. He said, I just want to get some coverage of you guys is there anything you're doing or want to do? And he, we said, yeah, 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 we got something. Check it out. So we shot it, and he, he rolled for about two minutes, three minutes, and he's like, that's great. And this was early on, maybe the first week of shooting. And you could just tell, like, the look in his eye was that he knew that his characters were being taken care of and that they lived beyond what was on the page. Um, and so almost, Yeah, because he's writer-director. Yeah, and almost every single take after that, he asked us to do one as it was written, and then we did four or five just improvised. So I would say 80%, 90% of what I do in that film was And not all directors are like that, right? No. No, some of them you get, are very You get specific. the full gamut and spectrum of, like, let, let you go, do your character, and, like, rigid, moving on, right? Right, but it's whatever works for them. Like, I understand that Wes Anderson is very specific as to what he likes to work on because his movies are so... Nobody can replicate what he yeah, does. Yeah, he's like an auteur. The language of his of his films, uh, like the actual language, like it's like a words, rule book, a Wes but, but Anderson visu- rule book. The visual language is also something. Yes. So uh, it depends on the on the director, but in this instance, Neil is a very, um, I mean, he's a great director because he knows exactly what he wants to see. But 
um, he'll find different ways of getting there. Mm-hmm. Wow, that must have been such a, that's just a crazy experience. And then Matt Damon, I know I brought it up already, but you yeah. told me a story of how he remembered everybody's name on set. Like in the morning, yeah. he would show up and people would be like, Matt Damon's here. Like, that's star power. Yeah. You know they're there and they change the mood of the set. For better, for the better. Absolutely. You know? He really taught me what it's like to be a number one on the on a show or a, or a film. And number one, for people who don't know, is they, there's a, a call sheet of for when you show up on set every day. Number one is the lead actor. And number two, and going further down the list, is, you know, Supporting, Supporting, cast. exactly, or, or a day player or whatever it may be. But he really taught me what it meant to be a number one or a lead because the director is technically the leader of the film, but he's in pre-production or he's at Video Village watching the watching the takes and, and oftentimes can't be around the whole crew or around the whole cast and is making so many decisions on a moment-to-moment mm-hmm. basis about the shot, about the lens, about the background, about the lighting, about the... Um, wardrobe choices, everything, weather, design, set design, weather, you name it. There's a million different things that they're constantly being sort of bombarded with. So the lead actor or actress um, is really responsible for setting the mood on set. And Matt was such a committed, like he was very serious about his work, but he was also really goofy and lighthearted about it. You know, we would cut from a scene and he would crack a joke with, everybody around there. Then he would go and talk to somebody else, make sure that they were feeling good and just really kept the energy high on set. Uh, and it made me realize why he gets paid what he does because right. th- that's an intangible that you can't replace. How somebody makes you feel on set mm-hmm. and how they carry themselves and, and the more composed and comfortable they feel, the more composed and comfortable everybody else feels around them. And as an actor, you just feel as though you have nothing but freedom to play. Mm-hmm. And Yeah, because they can go the other way too. Absolutely. Or it poisons the entire set. Right. And it's, and it's awful and everybody runs away when it's done and they never want to go back. They don't want to go to the premiere. No. Other than, well, <laughs> like, everybody me wants the, to go to the premiere. Well, true. Yeah. They just want to get trashed and stay away from the good, lead. Stay yeah. away from the number one. Everyone loves a good party. Yeah. So, okay, so Elysium was amazing. We don't have to belabor Elysium. I did hear as an aside, though, that Matt Damon was obsessed with the grouse grind, dragged celebrity friends up that grouse grind, which, for those of you that don't know, it's like a vertical incline up Grouse Mountain on the North Shore of Vancouver. Yeah. I'm sure Josh can do it in, like, 38 minutes. <laughs> I did it in an hour and a half and, like, cried. And but my legs are short, and I said, I'm never doing this again. Yeah, I've done it a couple times, mostly with visitors in town. He was a big fan of it. It's kind of like a a more wet version of Runyon Canyon in LA, yes, which can be pretty steep at at points as well. But well, he loved it. But you know, we we all had to stay in shape on that yes. show. I mean, I was in the best shape I've ever been, other than for C. Um, we all just really had to look like we were lethal, and and it had to be believable. If I knew Matt was going to show up looking good, so I had to show up looking just as good. Yes, because if I didn't, nobody would believe that it was a close battle. Right. And I know you're not going to bring this up, and it's less important now than it was, you know, during the summer of 2011. But I saw Game Changers, like, you're vegan, mm-hmm. and you did a lot of explaining about health and wellness and fitness and how you got jacked and you didn't have, you know, it was a plant-based diet. Yeah. I think there's less of that now, but I definitely remember you speaking to that then. And people were like, wow, that's so amazing. Yeah. You know, it's not funny? Because that was, you know, seven years ago, let's say. Yeah. And I know it's still time, you know, we haven't gotten there yet. Um but what a difference, even from then till now. It's, it's of, crazy. Of, you I mean, know, the, the explaining game really being has a vegan changed. and being fit. Right. Right. And I know that when I did press for Elysium, um, I did mention the fact, you know, that I 
trained my ass off and, and put on a bunch of like muscle weight. I think I put on 20 pounds of muscle and, and then I had to lose seven in the last two weeks because Neil wanted me to be more ripped or leaner, like more battle weary. Like maybe I haven't eaten as much as I would like. So there were some people who didn't believe that I'd done it completely sort of natural or on a fully plant-based vegan diet. But it's just like anything. It's just like you just put in the work day to day to day and uh, I don't care what anybody thinks as long as the results speak for themselves Absolutely. On, on the screen and for the character. Yeah. Well, and I thought of Joaquin with Joker, right? He lost like, what, 60 pounds yeah. or something insane for that role? Yeah. And I'm like, it's going to take him so long to earn it back. He can't just go have like a milkshake, like a lazy well, way of going around. I know my, you're not going to speak to that. It's fellow, loaded. But. Well, I will. He's my fellow vegan brother, yeah. man. So, yeah. I, and I just adore everything he does. I mean, he's one of those actors where no matter what he's in, I'll go watch it. Yeah, um, I agree. Because you know it's, it's going to be quality. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. Okay, moving on. Um, so, you know, Travelers, you did more TV in Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Would, would you say you had a pivotal moment after Elysium or even during that time? It was obviously getting really busy in Vancouver, like ridiculously busy. Yeah. There was a short moment of hashtag save BC film, mm-hmm. um, which we've really, you know, it's dusty in the back corner it's now. In the review, Murray, we yeah. might have to pull those bumper stickers up one day, but Touch give wood. them to Alberta. Touch all the wood. Yeah. <laughs> Won't get political, but give them right. to Alberta. They're having some problems there with that. Um, well. But did you feel like you were on a roll now and you were just, I mean, you never want to sit down and get comfortable. I know that in any role, especially in the arts. No, that was the hope. But to be honest, I didn't work for a while after Elysium. Um, and you often hear this story about yeah. people who have what they think is going to be a breakout role, but then um, nothing comes your way. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't for lack of trying or lack of auditions. I mean, I had, uh, I don't have my resume in front of me, but I'm trying to remember what I worked on after that. But I just remember there was moments where, I wondered if I was ever going to work again. I think mm-hmm. I went from having my best year to having my worst year right after Elysium. And uh, it's disheartening because yeah. you you always want to work on bigger and better projects. You know, I also love working on indie projects with, with friends if, uh, if the work is good or just to help them out because everybody needs a, a break and everybody yeah. needs a foot up. And, and I think if you have an obligation in this business, if you've been around for a while, and you can use your reputation as big or as small as it may be to help other people get their stuff made, then I really think you should. Uh, So I'm always happy to help out smaller, but I was certainly hoping something bigger would come my way. Mm -hmm. And it didn't. It it was slow for a while. Um, You had a decent check, though. Yeah, it was good. <laughs> but, you know, that'll the, the tax man takes a whole yeah, fair chunk enough. of that. And, um, but it's probably more surprising when you get the big ones like that. You know, it's like, okay, I want more of these, you know? Yeah, although I think having been a lawyer and had big paychecks, I also realized how miserable True, money doesn't I make you happy. was, and no amount of money was going to make up for that. That's so a good point. I, Jokes aside, that is a good point. Yeah, I sort of learned these days, like, I'll get the paychecks, and most of it goes into savings, and... I always like to say that there's two kinds of people in the world. There's there's things people and there's stories people. And I'm a stories person, meaning that if I, I love that. if somebody said, I'm going to give you ten grand, you can't save it. You have to do something with it. I would travel. I'd yeah, go, me too. I'd, I'd go places. I'm travel I'd, poor. Yeah, exactly. And I'd come. I'd, I don't want a Gucci purse. No, I want no. to go to. I want to go to Bali. Yeah. So I I don't spend a lot of money on clothes on on, on rent and any of that stuff because I just rather jump on a plane. Go hike the Red Canyons down in Utah or Arizona yeah. or and just experience new people, new cultures. So um, if I do get a big paycheck, I would say 50% of it goes to savings and then well, – Well, you I, also I have to save for a rainy day to your point. It's this 
industry is very fickle, right? It's feast or famine. And it's the same thing in all roles in film. Nobody wants to say no to work because shows get canceled. They get pulled. They don't come back. You have hiatus, right? All of these things that come up. American Thanksgiving, everything shuts down. Right. So you many know? things. You don't get paid when it shuts down. I right. mean, you get some EI, but that's not no, film paychecks. You're, no, you're exactly right. And it's uh, so I always sock it away. I put the tax man's portion aside, then I put the my sort of my safety net yep. aside, and then whatever's left, I'm like, I'm going on a trip. I know. I, I'm, I'm jealous of your trips. I see you right on. gallivanting around the world. Um, so talk to me a little bit about this independent film company as well, because you kind of touched on helping smaller productions. Mm-hmm. And I think you're right. Like, we are a service industry here in Canada. That comes up time and time again on this podcast of, you know, if that stuff goes away, what do we have as an infrastructure here to support any Canadian arts? And it's tough. There's all kinds of arguments about, you know, funding mm-hmm. and, and how you make that content here. Um, you know, I know Netflix has set up, uh, you know, writers, rooms, et cetera, across Canada to kind of help facilitate that somewhat, right? you know, for Netflix, but still. But talk to me a little bit about that, getting into kind of the production side and what that entails so people can understand what that is. Well, and it's interesting because I think um, it's important that we have, that we are a service industry because it, it brings in billions of dollars to the economy and, and the government recognizes that and provides the appropriate tax credits to any company, whether it's a, a U.S. company or uh, a Canadian, a local company. But I also am... I am big proponent and um, a sort of advocate for local production companies doing quality work. Uh, I think Canadian TV or Canadian films get a little bit of a bad reputation. I've seen so many. I mean, you talk about Denis Villeneuve. I know, I was just uh, going like to say. From Ecole Polytechnique all the way up until Arrival. And, yeah, and Blade Runner. Right, and then Dune is next movie. Yes. There's a guy, who's Canadian started, but I think Quebec has a little bit more of an artistic or cultural sort of... Um, yeah, I would agree. Preference. A European take on it. Yeah, they support really? the arts a little bit more. So I'm really pushing for that in in, um, in Vancouver and British Columbia writ large. And we started a company, a good friend of mine. We met, we talked about movies, what we wanted to make, what we loved. And we decided to start our own company. It was right at the Save BC Film time. We wrote a, a small office workplace comedy. Uh, I produced it. We co-wrote it. I starred in it and he directed it. And we hired everybody that I met on sets and uh, we couldn't pay them a lot of money, but I insisted that we did pay them. And, uh, you know, the film ended up doing well. We did, um, we won a bunch of awards. What was it called? Focus. Focus. Yeah. It was about a focus group gone wrong and, uh, or a number of focus groups and many other things going wrong. And we won a bunch of awards on the festival circuit and then got a, a theatrical release in in Vancouver and Toronto and then sold it to E1 for um, – for What's E1 for people that don't E1 know? E1 is a production company. They're, they're a production company and a distributor. So they will produce their own movies, but they also distribute a lot of movies because they have um, their hands in both of those pies. So they were able to distribute for us, put it on – um, pay TV and that's and pretty streaming. awesome, actually. It was fantastic. So we made our money back. We paid our producers because that's rare. That which for you know, first-time filmmakers, make, yeah, for film festivals and stuff, you're like your end game is just to get up on that screen. Yeah, you never even think about distribution. You hope for it, but yeah, I mean, I know Viff gets a lot. You get a lot of stuff to sure, you know, Biff but that's and big. Whistler, but you get the laurel, and that's about it. But laurels don't pay your investors back. So no. we we wanted to make sure that we got our investors paid back, and and we did. Um, and so now we're working on – it was a while before we made our next film. We got caught um, up in a bunch of other projects uh, doing some rewrites and um, script doctoring for some producers we know. They had some scripts they wanted to tighten up. And it, that points 
to exactly what I said earlier about if you show up and do good work, people will recognize it. So people showed up at the cinema. They saw what we had made, said, these guys write really well, so let's hire them to doctor up our script or to do a rewrite. Yeah, just showing up is half or, the battle, or, right? Or, hey, can you pitch us a couple of ideas? And so we've been doing that for the last little while. We now finally just went on a, um, a road trip this uh, past summer to look for locations for our next film, and uh, and we're deep into the uh, and pre-production on that one. How do you like that in comparison to acting? It flexes a different muscle, for yeah. sure. I think probably more your lawyer muscle. Yes, in in some ways that side I of your brain, right? The production side of it. I mean, I look at a script now, especially one that we've written or one that we've asked to rewrite, and I see the cost of it right away. Yeah. The producer <laughs> yeah. brain to me go. That's good. That's expensive. That's expensive. There's no way we're getting a helicopter here or whatever, right? That's when creatives cry when the producer starts looking at the cost of the script. that's their job, right? Yeah. And, um, but as a writer, I, I particularly enjoy it, and I give credit to my writing partner and one of my very good friends, Christopher Young. He's, he's a very, very good writer with words. And so I, I see more big picture story stuff, and, um, and he's the more granular writing the dialogue. That's and, a great partnership. It's a terrific partnership and one we didn't knew existed until yeah. we started working on our first film. We thought this is either going to destroy... Yin and Yang, those two things, right? Destroy our friendship or, you know, we could take off and yeah. uh, it's worked out really well. Awesome. It's like yeah. Goodwill, Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> yeah, the exactly. Matt, the Matt factor again. Well, yeah, I hope I'm Matt Damon in that story. Right. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. So have you ever been starstruck? Like... You know, we're kind of running out of time. I do want to talk about C, and mm. that's what made me think of that. Jason Momoa was obviously like, you know, a god in the yeah. last few months in the city. What a gem he seems to be. And, you know, like everywhere. He's everywhere. He's walking yeah. in Yaletown. He's taking photos. He's, you know, I had friends that worked on C. Um, so, tell me a little bit about that experience. So Just, broadly, um, never really been starstruck. Okay. Um, it's... I, I don't like the idea of celebrity. Yeah. It's not something I've ever strived for. Um, if you do good work and people recognize it for you, that's great. And um, But I got to admit, when I first saw Jodie Foster when we were working on Elysium, yeah. I, I, there was a little bit of me that just said, this is a boy her dream come true because she her work was just remarkable. Yeah, um, it's more of an admiration and yeah. less of a starstruck. Right. From, you know, taxi driver all the way on up. She's just phenomenal. But, uh, you know, so when I saw Matt Damon, obviously you're – it just makes you feel good that you're working on a, on the same project and at the same level as people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Momoa is a force of nature. He is a big, burly <laughs> beast of a man that carries himself the same way on set as he does off of the set. Like That's what there, I've heard. There isn't a – he is who you see. And, and I, that's, I appreciate that a lot because it means you know where you stand. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a story. The first time I met him, I was just starting work. I had a later start that day on set. We had uh, on C three hours to get into makeup and then an hour to get out of makeup every day. So he had a small bit in the morning. He was just shooting wrapped. Maybe it was the afternoon. I forget. But it was early it afternoon. It all blurs. Wrapped. Came into the makeup trailer. He carries around a portable record player with him. What? Put on, oh, yeah. Puts on some Megadeth and just starts cranking Megadeth. the tunes. Got, reaches into his little cooler, pulls out a Guinness because he loves his Guinness. As anybody watches his Instagram, you know this. He's like, hey, man, you want a beer? <laughs> I was like, Momoa, my man, I'm a big fan, but uh, I'm just starting work. Yeah. So I'm going to take a rain check oh, on that. I love it. But that explains who he is. And mm-hmm. he's... Um, 
he's just such a, a gregarious, outgoing guy, and uh, and I think he's the perfect fit for this character and and this world, and and a great ambassador for for our show and for Apple moving forward. And I love you. You guys were shooting in all kinds of remote locations up in BC. I know that was a bit of a challenge, right? Like. Ashcroft? Were you guys in Ashcroft? We were, we were everywhere. We were in Ashcroft. We were in Campbell River. We were in Hope. We were in Golden Ears National Park. We were... Um, and I know Ashcroft kind of looks like Afghanistan. Does it yeah. not? A lot of people use it for like war desert. and desert films, right? That's exactly right. There's, um, there's a few scenes in the, in, the sh- in the series. They wanted to get a slightly different look for uh, um, some of the later episodes. And I think it worked remarkably because mm-hmm. it was totally different than anywhere we had shot before. And you go from Golden Ears with a bunch of snow to the middle of Ashcroft where it really is uh, as close to a desert as we have in Canada. It was wild. But, you know, I mean, you're staying in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. You've got sometimes a 45-minute drive to set. So, you know, you wake up at 2 a.m. It's a 45-minute drive to set. You get there at 2.45. You have breakfast. Yeah, quote, in, the, in the pitch black. Right. Then you go in a makeup trailer at 3 a.m., you're in makeup for three hours, 6 a.m., drive you to set, and you start working, and then you work until the sun goes down, and then another 40... You're not you go, checking emails. Well, you're in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> That's you got right. no reception. You can see the world passes you by on set, right? You it talk actually, to people on set, they're like, the world's passing me by. The best part was... I woke up and it was four months later. Yeah, but it made us... We really got to know each other mm-hmm. on, on sea because... Wherever we were, there was no cell phone coverage, right. so nobody was on their phones. Oh, that's actually pretty awesome. And it was really cool because yeah. we, you're you're hanging out, and there's no, it's not like you can go back to your trailer. Yeah, it's, nobody can escape. There's nowhere to go. Literally, Forced you're in bonding. the middle of nowhere. So you you start to just develop friendships that that maybe wouldn't have been developed otherwise. Even though you still work eight months on a show, you develop a friendship in one way or another. But I think the bond we all formed on this was so much tighter. And mm-hmm. just having come from the premiere in L.A., it was so great to catch up with everyone. And mm-hmm. you really missed them, you know. And I know season two has been picked up. And Oh, amazing. I didn't know that. That's yeah, awesome. No, they just announced it. And my status still unknown, but hopefully it looks like it's trending in the right direction. What's that? You're only as good as your last, like, hour, someone told me in, in well, film, right? Well, that's right. Your and, last day. And until you show up on set, the role is never – it's not yours until you show or like, up. Or like, Josh. Or you get the paycheck. Then Josh, you're going to die in this one. You're like, not again. I know. <laughs> right? That's no spoiler. I haven't even seen C. I'm just throwing it out there as a joke. No, Nobody come right. at me about the Apple series. I know it's zero, well, okay? That, and that's why I can't say whether I'm in season two or no, not. No, you so can't. Just uh, Nor will you. You'll have to check it out. I won't. Well, I'll say after it's done. Yeah, of course. This comes out after anyway, but right. we're not. I'm not risking shit on this thing. Smart. So November 1, right? Yes. That's exciting. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. My pleasure. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. People keep showing up for this thing. It's like, I'm just going to ride the train until it stops. Well, like I said before, you know, we know each other, so your reputation precedes you. And and if people like hanging out with you, I mean, that's half of the battle in this podcast game is just making sure that you make people feel comfortable and good. And and people love to talk about their work. And I know I certainly do. I just sat down with a young actor the other day who asked me if he could sit down and pick my brain. And I said, sure, absolutely. Because That's super generous of I, you. I didn't know anything when I came. I mean, I knew how kind of to act. Um, but the business side of it and what happens on set and agents and casting directors and, and auditions and all of that, I had no idea. And headshots yeah. and resumes and short films. And there's so many intricacies to this business. So anytime somebody wants to sit down, I invite them to message me and I'll find time. We can grab a coffee and we talk. Such a good human. You are a good human. 
Thanks, Colby. Likewise. Thank you very much for coming on. My pleasure. Take care. Thank you. Bye. If you want to learn more about my podcast, you can go to vantropolispodcast.com or you can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also leave me a review on iTunes, subscribe, or share it with someone you love. Or don't love. Just share it.